as you're being seated, I'll encourage you not to get too comfortable. We're going to be standing in just a moment as we read God's Word, but I'll let you find that first and make a couple of comments. Um, Ezra chapter 9, we'll be reading a couple of verses that go with the first point of the message today, which you see in your outline is actually the fourth point of a series of messages within the series that I started a couple of weeks ago uh, in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're getting to the end not only of this study, but also the study in the book of, of Ezra. And we'll be making some uh, jumps into Nehemiah, Lord willing, in the days ahead. Uh, before we stand and read, and I'll ask you to look specifically at Ezra 9, verses 14 and 13. We're going to read them backwards because they really are, are descriptive. We, we don't have time to read all of it, but descriptive of the point that I want to make uh, before we move into a very, very important topic about uh, uh, repentance, and that's where we come to the end of the study of, of Ezra, and then Ezra 10, I'll direct you to that, and then the next passage that we'll read for the, the last point today. Now, you've seen on your worship guide, it says, and I know you all read this, voraciously as you come in. Uh, and if you're following the order of service, it says the Lord's Supper. We will not be taking the Lord's Supper today for a very simple reason. The Lord's Supper elements um, are in the freezer. Everything's been in the freezer. And um, Billy said I could use his name. Billy forgot to take them out. Now, let, let me just say something. Maybe you had good reason. I pull up to the parking lot yesterday in the afternoon because when I pulled up a couple of days ago, it, it looked like an Olympic skating rink. No kidding. And so I pulled up yesterday. The lot had been scraped, and I see out there. So you, you could walk in. I'm sure there were other people involved. But who do I see but Billy and Sean with shovels scraping the, the sidewalks so that you could be safe walking in today? So, Billy, wherever you are, we give you a bye, okay? All right, Stan, let's read the Word of God. Ezra chapter 9, verse 14, then we'll back up to verse 13. This is talking about two aspects of the character of God. Listen to this. This is magnificent. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? That, that was the problem going on here. We'll talk about that a little bit more. The intermarriage of the people of God with the pagan nations around them. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should, not, should there be no remnant nor any escape. Behold the justice of God. Verse 13, And if, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us, watch this, less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as that. There is always the compassion and mercy. Now, 
chapter 10. Drop down to verse 2. This all goes with the first point after the introduction. We'll get to that in, in just a moment. Ezra chapter 10, verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Now, back up to chapter 9 and verse 15. This goes to the last point of what I want to try to do today. I hope this is not confusing to you, but, but we want to lay this out, and then we'll get to the explanation of this and the application of it in just a moment. Ezra chapter 9, verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left with a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Back up to chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Here we see a full-blown picture of repentance. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Verse 4, arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and repent, do it. Almighty God, we're grateful for your word that we have just been singing. We've been looking at the words even as the melody has come from our hearts and our minds and has escaped our lips. And Lord, we glory in the truth that we've already been singing about. And now we, we hunker down, Lord. We get into your word so we have your word open in front of us. But Father, I pray for the gift of repentance and of faith to be granted to each person in this room today. First of all, for those who do not yet know you, and then for those of us who do know you. We need to be, Lord, always repenting repenters. And so I thank you for that and pray that you would now, uh, uh, through what I share and what I teach, that, that our hearts would be changed, our lives would be altered. And Father, as Kicker prayed a few moments ago, we lift up, particularly, I'm praying for the church now in Ukraine and in Russia, and Lord, for believers there, we do pray for all of the situation going on there. Lord, we know that the jaws of hell are gaping open and receiving people who are dying and will die in the midst of this war, but even a greater thought is that we pray that somehow they would have the opportunity to hear the gospel, those, of you, those that don't know you, that they would hear, have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be eternally saved. So we thank you for that. Now, help us as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your worship guide for a minute. I'm going to walk you through the big truth of today's message, and then we're going to look at some principles. I've got a lot of Scripture to put up on the screen, we may not read through all of it, but we will hit the high points of it because you need to get the references if you're going to go back and look at this and, and, and park it into your hearts and live it out in your lives. Okay, 
I want to walk you through the big truth. We, we have the big truth of the series, but specifically, what is the big truth of chapters 9 and 10? What do they have to do with repentance? Hear me, folks, the greatest threat. I'm going to come back to that. What is your greatest threat? We hear these words all of the time these days, an existential threat. What is the greatest threat to your spiritual health and usefulness? Stop right there. You were created to know and to glorify God. To delight in Him. How do you know that you delight in someone like God? Well, it says in the Bible that you obey what He has said to do. And so the greatest threat to your spiritual well-being and your spiritual usefulness is not that which comes from the outside. Are you hearing me? Not that which comes from the outside. What are the outside threats? At least uh, we have people, politicians, pundits saying, what are the greatest existential threats to your life, to your well-being? At the top of the list, it's got to be, at least I've heard it up until this last week, mentioned most often, but also in conjunction with the impending war. Climate change. That's what some people say is the greatest existential threat to you. Wars, politics, politicians, laws. Look at what's going all around us. None. Listen, here's why I say none of these is really an existential threat to you, Christian or non-Christian, because none of these threats in and of themselves can keep you from glorifying God. Amen. Not climate change. It's not, it can't keep you from glorifying God. Not laws that are passed to tell you how to live your life, even that are contrary to the law of God. That cannot keep you from glorifying God. Politicians can't. Wars cannot. Your greatest threat is one that comes from within. And I, I just, I've been praying, even like on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his first sermon. I've preached a lot of sermons, so here's Peter's first sermon. You, you can read through it, and at the end of his sermon, what happened? God granted repentance. We find that out later on in the book of Acts. God granted repentance, and 3,000 souls, it says, were saved. God can do that, and I've been praying that. So one of the, 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 the biggest threat that comes to you is from within, your failure to separate from sin. I'm talking to Christians right now the sin from which you have been delivered. Teens, students, you went to big weekend this last weekend, heard about your image in Christ and all of the rest of that. The greatest threat is that as believers, young believers, that you'll somehow not separate the sin from which God has delivered you eternally. The oldest person in this room, the same is true for you. And that's why the greatest threat is from within. You must continually repent. Now, let's do a quick review. What have we talked about? I know we've had a break for the last several weeks. I'm grateful for that. But I'm glad to get back into this to kind of wrap it up. Here's, here's a lot. Of, this is a lot of stuff. Um, this has been the basic principle we've been talking about. This is what grows out of this. We'll get to the thing about, whoa, does God really tell 
the people of Israel to get rid of their wives? Does God really say that? Yeah. We'll put that into context in just a few moments. But here's the principle that grows out of it for you and me. Don't get hung up on what you see as a problem coming from an Old Testament historical reality. Hear for yourself what God says to you. And this has to do with marriage. It has to do with any number of things like business uh, and, and wherever there is an intimate relationship. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then Paul goes on <clears throat> with rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question just expects the answer, okay? He's asking a question, but he knows the answer. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What's the answer? None. What fellowship is light with darkness? What's the answer? None. Are you guys with me? Okay, interactive preaching, you can talk out loud. Ed Bedrosian is not the only one who has the right to talk out loud. Okay, what accord has Christ with Belial? None at all. Okay, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What's the answer? None. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? I put this whole thing in because this is important. Paul supports the unequally yoked principle with a lot of stuff. He goes on. Why? Here's the positive. That was the negative because you and I, individually, corporately, believers, I know that there are probably some non-believers that are scattered here. We're talking about the church, not just an organization, but the universal, invisible church that continues from the establishment of the church through eternity. We are the temple of the living God. That's why you can't be unequally yoked. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, look at this. This is New Testament, but he's quoting the Old Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. I'm going to get to this as we look at the first point. Now, you've got a lot of stuff on your outline, don't you? Go to the very first point, faithfulness to God. I want to run you through this to, show, to bring you up to today. By the way, since we are not having the Lord's Supper at the end, I can preach longer. Okay, so hopefully we will get through this, but th this is so important. I want to bring you up to date because all of this is, all of this is a part of, th this is the explanation of chapters 9 and 10. Faithfulness to God means that we will separate from the world and its abominations. Period. Let's go back to this other one before. This is point two, actually. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. See, the problem with Israel, hear this. The problem was not that they had come up to a certain point and then they fell back. The problem was that they never really completely separated. Do you think that that might be a problem in, in the life of the church today? All over, not just the United States, all over. Do you think that, do you think, let me just draw it closer. Do you think that a problem with individual Christians like you sitting in the pew with individual Christians is that you have come to faith in Christ, you have been delivered from the 
penalty of your sins. You're struggling with the presence of your sins uh, or the, the power of sin over you. Someday you'll be delivered from the, the presence, the very presence of sin. But God says something important to you. You've been delivered from that. Leave it. Go out from their midst and be separate. Point two, being unequally yoked with unbelievers is a grave sin for uh, with unbelievers is a grave sin for believers. Well, we talked about that three weeks ago in, in the context of marriage. Some people don't think that that's what this is talking about. I think it's exactly what it's talking about. And then some. It is a violation of God's plan for our identity and the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Now, I also gave this explanation. Paul tries to make certain that we know that being separate from the pagan world around you. By the way, are you surprised when pagans act like pagans? Well, then why are we so surprised that an oligarch like Putin would, would invade another country? I, there are a lot of politics involved in all of that, but why are shocked but never surprised, right? We should never be surprised that the pagan world lives like the pagan world. What Paul is trying to say is he's surprised when Christians act like pagans. Now, and he's also giving a disclaimer. He's saying, look, guys, time out. I'm not saying to, to build a monastery on the hill and go up and separate yourself from ever having contact with the outside world. That's what he's saying there. We're in the world. We're just not with the world. Does that communicate? Students, do you understand what I'm saying? They're nodding yes. Okay, yeah. That is a, such an important uh, an application of be separate from them. And maybe you'll stand out enough for somebody to say, why are you like you are? Now, it may get you killed if they don't like it, but it may open the door for a witness and a testimony. That's what God has designed it to do. Well, let's look on. The, 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 the third one is Ezra experienced, look at it. You remember when we talked about that? Soul-crushing grief over the people's sins and carried their sin in intercession to God as if it were his own. Now, a, a, a very, we talked about that, how that we ought to feel the impact, the weight of sin, particularly of the people of God. We ought to grieve that the church is not more like Jesus. And, and it starts with us. And, so, and, and we're going to see this in a minute. You'll hear these words. We need to be repenting repenters. And, and that's what we're, we're, we're talking about today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? Perish the thought. I, I, when, when I thought about Ezra, and he was, he was horrified that sin was allowed to remain. There was just seeming, seemingly no conviction of it. They married foreign wives, which was absolutely prohibited. And Paul basically says the same thing in the New Testament. Look, church, are, are we to keep on sinning because we're under grace and God forgives everything? So are we to continue in grace so that, I mean, sin so that grace might abound? And he says, he's terrified, he's horrified at the thought. By no means, perish the thought. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I still remember from last week, Chris, when you baptized Grayson, and you talked about that very, that very thing. And I pray that Grayson, who's what? What are you? Where are you, Grayson? Third, fourth grade? Third, okay. He's in my Awana class. And I'm praying that he will understand and that those of us who are adults will understand. If we've died to sin, and that's what baptism is a picture of, it's a head scratcher. It should be. How do we keep on living in sin? It, it just doesn't mix being unequally yoked. And that, that's what he says here. And so we come up to the two points that we want to discuss today. Now, the first one is this, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to say it all to get the impact. Thank you for Jonathan for singing some of the songs that you did today to remind us about that. I think they were kind of keyed to the Lord's Supper, but they were really keyed to this part. This is where we see the two aspects of God's character that we ought to glory in. And not ever leave one out for the sake of the other. Okay, look at it. It's in the fourth point right there. There's a little bit of space under there, so you can take notes. God deals with our sin both with holiness and justice. You want to put a word out by there just that's descriptive? Law. There is a law. God is given. It's, it's, the law, it's the law that expresses his moral character. It's the law that judges us. So God deals with your sin and mine, not only with holiness and justice, but also with compassion and mercy. And you saw that in the verses that we read just a few minutes ago. Now, I'm going to give you a question, and this is one of those gotcha questions. You, you may get wrong, so I don't know if I want you to say the answer out loud. I don't want you to be embarrassed. Not that you would be. Which of these characteristics, justice and holiness or compassion and mercy, which of these two characteristics lead to repentance? Well, I heard one answer and it was right. So, good, you're not embarrassed. Both do. Why do I say that? Let me just go back. God is holy, okay? He's holy. He's, he's other than we are. But because we are his kids, I'm talking not to those out there, those of us who are in covenant with him, because we are covenant children of God, we should bear a family resemblance. And as our father, he requires obedience, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. That's the family resemblance. And around here, in case you're visiting, you notice, I, I, not all of our students are sitting over here, but I'll often refer to them. We don't believe in what I call the crutch of youth. You get a buy because you're young. You don't have to be serious about this holiness thing. That's for the adults, the old folks like Pastor Marty. This is something that God wants. If you're his child and, and part of his church, he expects the family resemblance to be there. 
You're supposed to be holy. Why? God says, because I'm holy. And whoa, here it is again. I have separated you from the peoples in the world, not of the world, that you should be mine. Uh, That is so incredible. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out (laughs) why, uh, other than just being deceived, why Christians... Genuine Christians have such a problem with the concept of holiness. You know, they're, they're just a bunch of Bible beaters and the captain bring me down and you know, all, all the rest of it. No, holiness is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. He requires it. Parents, you love your children, do you not? Grandparents, do you not want them to walk in a manner that, and I'm talking about family resemblance, if you have a healthy family, family resemblance, but also a part of the bigger family of God? Of course you do. And because God is holy, when we willfully disobey, then God brings His justice, His punishment. Now, if that sounds strict, that's because it is. You remember in the garden? I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. Okay. When God gave one command, one little command, don't eat from that tree. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate from the tree. What did God say would happen? They would die. What happened? They died. Now, wait, 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 time out. Are you really telling me that God would do that? Doesn't that sound over the top? Doesn't that sound kind of like God is saying, it's my way or the highway? (laughs) Well, you've anticipated what I'm going to say. That's exactly what he was saying. Adam, it's my way. Oh, and by the way, Jesus repeated it. It's the narrow way that leads to life because that's what God is after for you. So it's my way, which is the good way, or it's the highway that leads to eternal destruction. And there are so many people that are on the highway. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. It's my way. And that is, we usually use that my way or the highway in a negative way. That is one of the most positive comments that you could ever hear from the mouth of God or from the lips of Jesus. Why? Because sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve found that out. We are born into sin. And from the time we get old enough to begin to act out of our nature, we also sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, let's go back to Ezra. We're still in the, that, that, this first point. And I want you to see something. Look at this. When Ezra, next week we're going to do a wrap of the whole thing when we jump into Nehemiah. Okay? That's also the annual meeting, as Kicker said in here during our ABF hour. So Zerubbabel brings the people, and they build the altar, they build the temple, and, and, and then Ezra comes and he teaches them the law. He just sits down with them, and, or rather stands with them, and, and they, just, they just are taught the law. And all of a sudden, listen to this, when, when they were taught the law, their, their, their conscience was awakened to their sin. 
How did they respond? They were terrified. They saw the holiness and the justice of God. Rightly so. They were not in error. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? That's not just light talk, folks. That's a fear. That's an existential threat so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. They were terrified. I, I... I I remember as a child, maybe some of you remember this, I remember being terrified. I grew up in a church, and it was a a very conservative, actually it was a missionary Baptist church where they're a little to the right of Southern Baptists, a lot to the right. And uh, so I heard heard heaven and hell every week, and as a child, I, I, I experienced terror. Whatever hell was, it wasn't good. And I didn't want to go there. I didn't understand all of the ramifications. But a holy terror of standing before a holy God with, without a Savior should be absolutely terrifying. And, and that's the way they felt. They were terrified. Now, by the way, that's the first step in repentance. It's not the only step. And some churches leave you there. I'm afraid it's too much on the other side these days. But that's the first step in true biblical repentance. Here is why I said to you a minute ago, these other threats that are around us, and by the way, they they could be very, very serious. We could be moving toward another Cold War or another actual World War III, people are saying. I read this morning where Putin is putting all of his nukes into alert status. Now, you guys don't know anything about this, but when I was in grade school, anybody? The the under-your-desk drill? As if? Get under your desk, kids. (laughs) So you can be vaporized from a Safe, I don't know, but that we had, we did that. We did that in my day. Isn't that silly? But we did that. And, and so World War III, and all of a sudden, what people have been fearing over on the other side of the world has started to maybe get some of us Americans who've been so insulated, so insulated, uh, to think about these eternal realities. And, and so Jesus said it like this, don't fear, don't fear anybody. War, other things viruses, any number of things, you know, everything. Not that those are unimportant. I'm not saying that. But, but the ultimate existential threat is standing again before God, naked as it were, without a mediator in between you and Him. Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot fear, kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They were terrified. But, did you see it a minute ago? I kind of pointed it out. They also had incredible hope that they had read about the mercy of God, the compassion of God. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, uh, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith. Yes, we have done that. With our God, we have married foreign women, 
from the peoples of the land. We've gotten involved in their abominations. By, by the way, these women were unrepentant. They weren't like Rahab. They weren't like Ruth, who came into the covenant community of believers. There were people actively involved in all kinds of abominations, pulling the covenant people of God, uh, of God away from that. But look at this at the end. But even now, there is hope. They looked at the character of God, and they saw hope. Not just punishment, but hope. And every time we proclaim the gospel, every time we see a baptism, every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder of the fact that our hope has come in Jesus Christ. Let me jump to the New Testament. Paul was all over this. I'll tell you, this is one of the most misquoted, misunderstood verses. And that's why I asked the gotcha question a minute ago. Which is it? Is it the kindness of God that leads to repentance or the judgment of God? It's both. But I, I, I've actually read articles that say, no, it's not the judgment of God. It's the kindness of God. And they quote the last part of this, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't you know that? But if you step back and read the full context of that, back in the first, four ver first uh, three verses and then back up into chapter 1, guess what you're going to find? Here's what this really says. You're judging other people and you do the same thing. You're under the same judgment. And there is grace. There is hope. But don't take God's grace lightly. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Because some people believe that they would, they would get on to me for preaching. I don't think I've preached hard, do you? But some people would say, oh, you kind of, you've been preaching a little bit hard today. Judgment and all the rest of that. There's a very, very, very famous preacher in our country today who in a, an interview with someone said these words, people already know they're sinners. So, I don't talk to them about their sin. I just talk to them about God's love. To do that without the warning is a half gospel. Okay? So, a half truth presented as a whole truth is what? A lie. I didn't say his name. I got his name right here, and here's why. Some, and I'm going to mention a couple of other names, but these are only... I don't know if he's a false prophet or he's just really, really deceived. I don't know. I can't read his heart. And so the la I don't want you to be left with, Marty's just bad-mouthing these other preachers. I want you to hear what they say and evaluate from the Word of God. And what he says is error. I don't care if he has the biggest church in America. <laughs> and so if we're big on preaching John 3.16, which we should be, for God so loved the world, we also ought to be big on preaching Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed once for a man to die, 
And after that comes the judgment. And if we do not teach that, I'm going to talk about this in just a second, but there are, there are millions upon millions of people who are going to miss the window of opportunity to get right with God. And you know what I really hate? I can't, I, there are a few people listening out there in cyberland, and I get that, but this message is not going to the millions and millions of people in the world who really are going to miss the window of opportunity. And again, if they die without Christ, they go into a Christless eternity, which is hell, and it's not a good thing. By the way, what is the window? And I'm talking to you in here now. What is the window? Hebrews says it today. Today, if you hear his voice. Now, if your heart is hard and you don't hear his voice, there's no repentance. Please ask God for repentance. Today is the window. You're, you're not guaranteed anything beyond walking out of here. Jan was telling me about someone, she was someplace yesterday and about a particular person whose husband, probably about my age, I guess, went out to get the mail, slipped on the ice, hit his head, and died the next day. The window of opportunity is today. Students, it's today. And millions of people are going to miss the window. I, that, that, that's tragic. That, that's tragic. Don't take God's kindness for granted. All right, let's move into the second. So what do you do about it? The first part is to come under this incredible uh, uh, picture, this incredible sense that I stand before a holy God and any judgment, any justice that he gives out to me is deserved. Let's look at the last point. Repentance, that's the key, is the only remedy for our defection from and faithlessness to God. Repentance is necessary, costly, and continual. I'm just going to give a short disclaimer. What is written here, I don't know if you've read this or not. We didn't read the whole thing. I alluded to it. The people that had married foreign wives who were dealing in abominations were told to divorce their wives and get rid of the kids. Really? God said that? Yeah. Now, please hear something. I don't know that there are many people who would say this, but there are always people who are looking for Old Testament stories that are a little bit outside the norm. They were historical realities, and they'll use those stories so that they can excuse their disobedience or their disbelief. So what's the reality for you about putting away wives? Divorce. Here's the reality. God hates it. Why? Because it's against the covenant that God established between a man and a woman from the very beginning. Now, I've jumped to the, to the New Testament because Paul goes back to the book of Genesis, to the very first marriage, and he tells it right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, a man shall leave his father and mother, 
hold fast to his, his wife, and the two shall become, and the principle here is one flesh. That one flesh principle is the covenant that God has given in marriage. And there are three reasons. We only see one of them here, which is the most important. What are the three reasons for marriage? I do this in all of my uh, marriage premarital counseling. So Joshua and Elizabeth, maybe I should ask you. And No, I, w- I won't do that. Um, there are three reasons why God gave us marriage. Th- this is good for you. What's the first one? Well, the, the order of the third one is the most important. The first one is for procreation. That's why only marriage can do that. Okay? Only marriage between a man and a woman can do that. God gave it for, and, and he talks about a godly offspring. And you, you'll see this in a minute. That's the first reason. Second reason, don't let your minds go too far afield, is recreation. In other words, delight, recreation. Being married ought to be the most fun experience of your life. Now, there are ups and downs, there are challenges. I'm not saying it's not hard, all the rest of that. But, but it ought to be something you ought to delight in one another. Recreation, recreation is fun, right? And, and, and that's the way marriage was created to be. It ought to be, in, let me use another word besides fun. That's not a very spiritual sounding word. It ought to be, here's the spiritual, it ought to be enjoyable. And then the third reason, which is the huge, hugely most, that's not a word, which is the most important, demonstration. It it ought to show Christ in the church. And I've said this before, maybe you've heard it, that if your children had no Bible, your children ought to be able to look at their daddies and say, you know, I've, I've never read for myself how much Jesus loves me, but Dad, I can look at how much you love Mom, and, and I can see and that, that that's a picture, and I want to know Jesus because of that. And they ought to be able to look at you, Mom, and say, I, I don't understand that, that whole dynamic of how I line up under Christ and I follow Him and work with Him and love Him and obey Him, but Mom, I look at how you respond to Dad. And that gives me a picture. Now, we, we have the Bible. But that's, demonstration is so huge. And that's why any violation, listen to me, any violation of the marriage covenant is, ab, is abhorrent to God. Any violation. The last prophet to write, write it, and by the way, Nehemiah is the last chronological book of the Old Testament, 400 years before the New Testament. So Malachi comes along, he's the last prophet, and he talks about this. Now, I'm gonna, several slides, okay? But just follow this. Judah has been faithless. Oh, maybe it's still a problem when Malachi is around. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah. Now watch this, several things, has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. I guess they just hadn't learned their lesson. Now they did here in Ezra, they repented, okay? Let's go on in Malachi. Second thing you do, boy, this is so New Testament. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. This is the, he's speaking to the husbands. 
with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the, your offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. You say, why does he not? First Peter chapter 3 says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner so that your prayers will not be hindered. Just simple principles, simple principles, but so profound. And he goes on, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, although she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Marriage is a covenant institution. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Isn't that interesting? So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And Jesus, I'll just put this up here. You can use it as a cross-reference, Matthew 19, 8 and 9. It, it's just hardness of heart issues. Jesus said, yeah, Moses allowed you, but that's not the way God designed it. I, uh, shocked but not surprised. The world around us is closing in. I'm talking about our little country here and all around us, and even within some of the, the, the halls of the legislatures and the Supreme Courts, people are making laws that, that will, will make illegal. They already are. I've read of several people who've been arrested for simply preaching this message today. One man, one, one woman for a lifetime, and anything outside of that is abhorrent to God. Period. And I'm not being bold and bravado and all that. It's just, it's what the Word of God says. And God's law is, is far more important than a human court of law. So, with that. Uh, all right. So, what's this passage all about? It's not first about divorcing your wife. Don't ever, ever, ever use this passage of Scripture as an excuse for doing so, or any, for that matter. I've just done a little treatise on the importance of marriage. So I've got three things, if you want to take notes under this last one. I just said a minute ago, repentance. That's what this is all about. It's about repentance. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is costly. Repentance is continual. Let's look at these for just a second. All right. Who gets to go to heaven? Really? Who gets to go to heaven? What is our answer normally? Oh, if you believed in Jesus Christ, then you get to go to heaven. <clears throat> Jesus had something at least to add to that. What do you have to do before you can get to believing in Jesus? Luke 13, 3 and 5, he says it twice in this story. I tell you of, of certainty, unless you repent, you will not go to heaven. You will perish. It's only repenters who get to go to heaven. Now, obviously there's something else that happens after that, but let me just say it. Where true repentance is missing, and this is why this is so important, where true repentance is missing, 
Saving faith is also missing. It's like two sides of the same coin. You never have a heads without a tails. And so if repentance is missing from your experience, if you had a wonderful, glorious, you say, experience of believing in Jesus Christ, but you had no repentance, then you cannot say other than Jesus says, I'm on that... I'm on the the highway to perishing. Let's see what repentance is. Repentance, this is a good definition. You've got some other really, really good quotes. I'm not going to get to them all on repentance. One is a definition that that this is a simpler definition. The one by A.W. Pink is classic. But let's just look at it. What is uh, uh, repentance? A change of one's life as the result of. That's what comes after this. As a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. You look at God in a different way. You look at yourself. You look at sin in a totally different way. And that issues into a change of life. You say, well, one time I was sorry for getting caught, and so I, 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 I told the pastor I'd come to church every week and I, you know, and then you feel, that's penance. That's not repentance. Repentance, and people try to separate this out, mind, emotions, it's all the inside. It's something that God does in you where you have this inner, they had it on the day of Pentecost, and they cried out, what do we do? And they were already there, and Peter said, repent. Repent, have a change of your thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Oh, you mean I can no longer just keep the law and be righteous? No. You have to believe in Jesus because he's the righteous one. And then it changes your life. Not perfectly. There's still going to be the the, the dealing with the indwelling sin. I don't like the word besetting sin. It almost um, legitimizes it. You struggle against those things that, that hammer at you every day every week for the rest of your life, but you look forward to the doing away with sin. So what is repentance? It's a godly sorrow for. It's an understanding of the depth of my sin, the seriousness. It's a desire not just to be forgiven, but to to be delivered. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you? Before I came to Christ as an 11-year-old, I, I had a sense that I needed to be delivered from the, the, the penalty of my... I wanted to be delivered from the power of sin. And, and so there's that acknowledgement of that. You, you know, when I think about this, uh, I, I, the last couple of weeks, and, and uh, it, it'll come about on different news feeds and all the rest of that, Notable deaths. You can't keep up with them. But I I had two written down recently. Notable deaths. Bob Saget and Betty White. What did you think when those people died? I wondered because both of them were, I mean, they were plastered as being wonderful, funny. and, And we'll have these little euphemisms like, oh, I'll bet 
I'll bet she's telling a joke to St. Peter. I'll, I'll bet if there's a comedy club in heaven, Bob Saget's there. You know, all these little sweet, little sentimental things. But my question was, did they know Jesus? Who gets to go to heaven? Not people that were smart or funny or famous. It's people who repent and believe in Jesus. And then I saw something that was on uh, Fox. It's the only channel that would show something like this, I think. I'm not, I mean, they show a lot of stuff that maybe I don't like. I saw an advertisement from Franklin Graham, and I I really, I've struggled with for some time. I, I think he's probably a great, I've never met him personally. I'd love to. But, but be careful. He had an, he had an ad. I, I think that's commendable. At least he's trying to get something out. But I, I had this fear, is he really telling people what they need to do? Here's what it said. Hi, I'm Franklin Graham. Now here, I'm, here I am using a name. I didn't use Joel Osteen. Whoops, I said it. Uh, but I'm using Franklin Graham. No, no, please listen to what he says and and weigh this. Discern. Maybe your heart has been gripped by fear as millions of others have because of this coronavirus pandemic. That's old news. Really, kind of. But I want you to know that God loves you. Now, he's writing to a general audience, not just to Christians. And um, the, the ad was, he made you, he created you, he knows everything about your life. Okay, so far so good. You don't need to be afraid. Then he, then he kind of goes off the rails. Jesus said, I never, I'll never leave you or forsake you. To whom did he say that? Covenant people of God. He's not walking with you right now if you're an unbeliever. Okay. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, I'm wondering what lost people are thinking. Uh, If you've never trusted him as your Savior, you can pray that prayer right now. Just simply pray this prayer. God, I'm a sinner. They have no context for that. I'm sorry for my sins. Well, a lot of people are. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I want to invite him to come into my heart, into my life. I'm willing to trust him as my Savior and follow him as my Lord. Uh, Repentance, maybe? And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Now, if you've prayed that prayer, call this number. Okay. I, I, I wrote down some thoughts. If I tried to put myself in the shoes of a lost person. Hey, are we going too long? Okay, can, can I just have a few more minutes of your time and finish this? I realize it's, it's, it's wow, it's past a quarter till. We should be through with the Lord's Supper by now. Okay. I'm just going to do it and ask forgiveness. Okay. But I, I'm, I was sitting there this last week, and so I'm trying to think like a non-believer. Okay, you say God loves me. So if he loves me, why, if God loves me, why do I need a Savior? You might need one if you're afraid. He's, that was his hook. Are you afraid? You might need one if you're afraid, but I'm not afraid. And I don't need Jesus to be with me. You might be a sinner, but I'm not that bad. Besides, even if I have sinned and I'm sorry for my sins, isn't that enough? 
And by the way, I absolutely do not understand what invite him into your heart means. So I don't need a savior. I'm thinking that the average lost person with no context for what Franklin Graham has said is going to be confused at the best and deceived at the worst. But if you are instructed, I've tried to do this this morning, instructed and convicted that you are a sinner before a holy God, then you will know that you desperately need a Savior. Repentance is a gift. Just like faith is a gift. By the way, how many of you pray for more faith in light of the world's situation? Do you also pray for more repentance? Ooh, you should, because they're both grace gifts. I think on on the day of Pentecost, God granted the gift of repentance to 3,000 souls, and they got saved. When they heard these things, they fell silent. This is later on when Peter's giving his report, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted. God has granted as a grace gift the gift of life, uh, the the gift of repentance that leads to life. But it's, listen to this, it's also a duty, it's a command. Times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's a message that you can take wherever you go. Second thing, repentance is costly. Okay? Salvation is free, but repentance will cost you everything. This is another hyperbole, kind of like the, the, the chapters 9 and 10 are hyperbole, overstatement to make a point. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, does God want you to hate your mom and dad? No. But in light of how great a distance it is between your love for him and your love for everything else in the world, yeah, it, it, it's almost like that. Wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not talking self-hatred. Please hear this. He's not talking self-hatred. He's talking self-denial. He doesn't really want you to go out of this place and pluck out your eye the next time you look at something that's objectionable. Or cut off your hand. Do you know why I know that? If you cut out your right eye and you cut off your left hand, guess what? You've still got your left eye and your left hand. What he's saying is, what, this is the whole thing from Ezra. Whatever is most precious to you that keeps you from God, get rid of it and do it quickly. There's no such thing as partial repentance. God wants a full term. Is it hard? Let me ask, is is repentance hard? Actually, it's impossible. Remember, it's a grace gift, and that's why I say, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I, I don't know that I have repentance, why not ask God for it? It's a gift. I've said that to so many people that I've witnessed to. Well, I just don't want to turn from my sin right now. Have you ever thought to ask God to give you repentance and help you to turn from your gift? Jesus said that, you know, it's like a a treasure in a field. It's like a pearl. You you just sell everything you have uh, because no matter what you have to give up, it's worth it. It's worth it. 
Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 3 uh, in verse 8. I, I love this. Indeed, I count. Paul had a lot. I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but, this is an interesting word, rubbish, garbage, refuse, leftovers that are stinky. Another word that's used in the King James, not to be crude, dung. And he said, for knowing Jesus Christ, everything else, although it might have some value in this life, but compared to Jesus, it's all nothing. Last thing, and this is so important. For Christians, please understand this. Repentance is not a one and done. It, it's continual. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. All present tense, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I, I think of the rich young ruler. I, I, I remember when I was a youth pastor many years ago. I'll remember the night I, I was teaching, doing a teaching for the students, and, uh, and I, I shared the story of the rich young ruler. And I was talking about repentance, interesting, and how that the rich young ruler was unwilling to repent of his God his God was money. Your God may be something else. It's whatever you're not willing to give up to follow Christ. And there was a girl. Uh, Jan probably, she, she's shaking her head. She remembers this. And this girl said, and she was being very sincere, uh, she said, Marty, I hear what you say, but I'm not willing to give up everything and I'm still a Christian. I called her by name and I said, you've got a problem, let's talk. Again, I couldn't get into her heart, but I just share that with you because I think that that, that describes a lot of people who are in churches today who call themselves Christians. A failure to repent, to leave, to realize that Jesus says, I am the way and it's my way or it's the highway. Now, this last thing, and then we'll be done. I was going to say this for the Lord's Supper, and, and I wrote it down after I wrote my notes out this morning. No sin is too small to be confessed or repented of. And you may think it's a slight thing, a small thing. It may be something like you've been surly to a parent or, or it's just a little thing, a little white lie, you know, all the rest. There is no sin too small to be confessed and repented of because those things fester and, and they'll get you. And the reason I know how important they are is nothing less than the blood of Jesus was required to forgive what you consider a small sin. But I want to go to the other side and encourage you. No sin is too great to be covered by the blood. There is hope. Not only in Israel, but for those of us who come to the cross as deeply as we have sinned. And when we turn away from that sin and turn 
by faith to Jesus Christ, there is salvation. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you that this word has convicted me deeply (coughs) this past week. I pray that it's had the same impact on those who know you and even those who don't. I pray that this week there would be a realization of the things that we've talked about and a crying out to you in repentance and in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.